Hi, you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review, where we're just a bunch of blind men trying to figure out that elephant. I'm Lou Rosenfeld, your host, and I'm joined by Kat Velos. Hi, Kat. Hey, Lou. Great to have you join us today. Uh, Kat's a UX designer and author. Uh, you might know her books, and if you don't, you probably uh, will before long. One is We Should Get Together, The Secret to Cultivating Better Friendships. The other is Connected from Afar, A Guide to Staying Close When You're Far Away. And boy, um, those are timely topics, and they actually jive quite well with the talk that you're going to be giving at the Design Ops Summit in October. The conference has been virtualized, if folks are wondering, uh, and really well done, I will say. I'm only slightly biased, but it's going to be a a, a very anti-Zoom fatigue experience, partly because we have really great speakers like Kat. Um, it's October 21st through 23rd, and Kat is one of our opening speakers. She is actually opening the entire conference, and her talk is called The Other L Word. What is that other L word, Kat? It is loneliness, Lou. Oh, boy, I just sagged when you said that. Uh, because I, I feel like that's a topic that I kind of, it this sort of seems beneath the surface and yet it's there. Uh, I talk to a lot of people who tell me, especially working in large organizations or they're a, like one of the rare UX people on their team, or they're a rare flavor of UX person. Maybe they're a UX writer, uh, surrounded by a bunch of designers in all these cases, they feel alone. And this was true before the pandemic hit. What's going on? Yeah. And um, just want to acknowledge that for a lot of people, there is a taboo and there is a sense of either anxiety or shame or pressure um, that has made it an unmentionable for many years. And the problem with that is that when we have a problem and we can't talk about it or we can't mention it, we can't solve it and we can't heal it. And people will continue to suffer silently. Over the last few years, as I was researching my first book, We Should Get Together, which looks at the epidemic of loneliness in America and how it's been growing over the last several years. Um, this is something that I found again and again, when people feel alone or isolated or lonely um, or in the specific phrase that I coined in the book, which is platonic longing, which is a subset, which doesn't necessarily mean that someone feels lonely, but they have this longing for a platonic connection that mm -hmm. is missing in their life. Um, many times people just blame themselves or feel like it can't change um, or don't know how to change it. And then they feel stuck. And the problem with that is certainly the pain and suffering that comes with feeling isolated. You know, we're human beings who have evolved to be together, to work together, to cooperate together, to celebrate and suffer together. And that's how we've survived for so long is through that togetherness. And when people don't have that in their life, individuals suffer, our communities suffer, and our businesses suffer. And particularly with the talk I'll be giving at the upcoming conference in the design industry as well, in many of the examples that you named where somebody may feel alone in a design department or on a team, you know, we are not rewarded for admitting our vulnerabilities or for admitting when we feel lonely. And I think that needs to change and we need to acknowledge that it is a normal human experience. 
And we won't have the healthy teams or the healthy industry that everybody deserves until we talk about this and address it and give people um, a sense of empowerment to mention it when it's happening for them or to say as ops professionals, like this is something that we want to make a priority to prevent in our team. And like, here are things we can do to support the design culture that we want to be a part of. Um, yeah, I was going to ask about that connection to the ops people and maybe more broadly to management um, in a large organizational environment or even in many medium and small ones. I wonder how much of this can be raised from the grassroots. If I'm in a setting uh, and I'm fe- a work setting and I'm feeling lonely, do I have much I can do if I don't have the support of, of at least uh, management? If not senior it will leadership. be much harder if management doesn't understand the value of belonging in the workplace, because um, that is a struggle. It is an uphill struggle. It's already hard to deal with on its own as an emotional experience, a mentally taxing experience, um, a professional stress experience. And if management doesn't support belonging and doesn't understand the value of belonging for their staff, you know they're going to pay for it in another way when mm-hmm. those people leave the company. And one of the most interesting stats I found in the research is that when you look at, you know, a person works at a company and they have a salary for that year, when they leave the company, it can cost either 50% up to 250% of their annual salary to replace them. So the time and money spent on replacement costs when employees are not retained because they don't feel a sense of connection in the company is a huge cost that the managers who disregard this then become a financial liability to the company Mm -hmm. because they're not retaining people and they're costing the company a lot of money on replacement costs. So this is why it cannot just be a bottoms up effort to create a sense of belonging in a team and to prevent workplace loneliness. It really needs to come from the management level, Um, whether they care about it from the heart level or the wallet, um, it needs to be a priority. Now, is it showing up as loneliness specifically when, uh, you know, things are researched along the lines of exit interviews and so forth? Or is loneliness something that sort of hides beneath the surface in some other framing or language? Well, it frequently um, hides in other ways. So one of the ways that it can manifest is in absenteeism. So employees who feel disconnected at work are more likely to take sick time or to actually get sick because chronic loneliness is a stressor on the body that causes more inflammation and a reduced immune system. So people might be getting sick. They might be less engaged in their work. And lonely workers are twice as likely to be poached by other companies who are kind of calling them over to a place where the grass might be greener. So turnover and retention challenges are often a, a big sign. Uh, absenteeism. Uh, is there any type of direct, almost line of questioning, uh, uh, let's say design operations uh, manager can look to be having with staff uh, without saying, hey, are you lonely? Uh, what, are the, what are some good ways to, to kind of get at it if they're, uh, that, that should be basically built into the, uh, the things that a manager would just generally be looking for? Well, one of the unfortunate things about loneliness, um, which thankfully now is lifting a bit, is people's willingness to identify with that. So, for example, the UCLA, um, there's a research study at the UCLA that's been going on for many, many years, 
and they have the world's most commonly used unidirectional scale for measuring loneliness. And one of the interesting things about it is they don't use the word lonely anywhere in that survey um, because of the taboo. Mm. Again, socially, there's a taboo around associating or identifying with that. And so they have to ask questions that are around that. So for example, um, when I want to connect with a companion, I know who to turn to. Or when I feel alone, um, and that's maybe not a good example because it has the word alone in there, but when I feel alone, I know who I can go to for support. When I want to celebrate, I know like who to go to. So mm-hmm. it asks like these questions that sort of tease at like, mm. how much access do you feel like you have to the emotional support and connection that you need, regardless of whether the situation is a, a sad one or a happy one. And um, when people do feel lonely is they often don't know who to go to or who to speak to when they're having an experience that feels more personal or more emotional. Now, is loneliness something that you see as uh, purely an emotional feeling? Because I, I know that there are many people who go into new environments, especially in the time of COVID. Um, I'll even I'll mention a friend of mine who took a uh, job uh, during the pandemic uh, where he has something like um, he's had maybe an hour of time with his supervisor in about four months. And of course, this is remotely done, maybe an hour in four months. He doesn't know where to turn. It's not an emotional thing for him so much, but he really has no idea not only of whom to turn to, but whom to work with. And, you know, this is not such a, a rare occasion. Uh, a supervisor may not be the person who even requested, much less interviewed a, a new hire. And then suddenly they have that new hire, may not know what to do with them. Mm-hmm. So my colleague is, or my friend is alone. Is he lonely? That's up to him to define and describe for himself. You know, one of the more interesting pieces of this that's come up for me um, in my interviews with designers, specifically around the topic of workplace loneliness, is that they may not feel like there's not just like one uh, like universal sense of loneliness and then it just like covers your entire life. It can be very circumstantial. So somebody may have adequate social support in their life you know, in their friend circle, or they might be tight with their family, or they might have a fam- like a family of their own, like a spouse and kids that they feel like, I'm around people all day long. I have access to people. I am not alone. But in their work circumstance, when they need feedback on their work, or they want to casually bounce ideas back and forth and brainstorm with somebody, they maybe they're a team of one, or maybe they feel like the peers on their design team um, are not open to that kind of conversation. And so technically there either are or aren't people around them, but when they have a specific need for a type of connection, they don't feel like they have a source to turn to. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that at a certain point, um, work can create uh, an emotional toll, uh, including loneliness, but uh, someone may also be coming into work bearing an emotional burden Mm. from the other aspects of their life. And I guess an mm-hmm. interesting challenge for managers is to how, to how to differentiate which is which. I mean, the workplace induced uh, emotional pain, loneliness or otherwise, should be the purview of the manager to do something about. But um, if it's coming from outside the workplace, uh, th- is it the role of the organization, the employer, to, to basically help the employee deal with those emotional challenges, including loneliness. 
That's an interesting question because what it makes me think about is how frequently we hear companies say, we want you to bring your whole self to work. Mm. And if any company is saying they want you to bring your whole self to work, but they're like, we don't care about your outside life. We only care about you when you're inside this company. Then like, it's a bit hypocritical Mm -hmm. because your whole self does involve your whole life, (laughs) does involve your whole identity and your experience as a human being. You know, particularly now in the time of COVID where so many people are working from home, there is not a very clear boundary between work life and home life. Um, In some cases, there's like no boundary. And so for an employer to say like, look, we only care about what's happening when you're here in the company is like not a plan for success because you have to acknowledge that people are struggling in so many ways and responding to this pandemic in so many ways and responding to the lack of boundary between work life and home life in different ways. And so I think it's very, very important for companies to acknowledge that people may need more support than before Mm -hmm. and that it behooves them to show that they actually care about their employees as whole people in this time. And one of the ways that that they can do that, so for example, um, I interviewed a design manager the other day about some of the strategies that have worked or haven't worked in terms of preventing workplace loneliness on her design teams. And one of the primary things that she says and that I've strongly advocated for is like, allow people on the teams to have a chance to talk about something beyond work, Mm -hmm. to have a chance to share about other things that they care about, except for just the things that fall under their job description, to have casual conversations about something else so that it's not always just like work, 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 but it's like, you're a human. I care about you as a human. What else matters to you? What else is happening in your life? Um, So that people can be seen for seen and heard for more of who they are. And that's when we have a greater likelihood of feeling valued and feeling that sense of belonging. It is so tough to, I mean, uh, on, on one end of the spectrum uh, for managers and an organization as a whole is not, not coming off as just transactional and not really caring outside, you know, the, the workplace and, and the fact that you know, and employees bringing their whole self to the workplace. And then the other end of the spectrum is this, this uh, as you mentioned, like this kind of almost, it's almost a bit creepy, this, uh, this expectation that you bring your whole self all the time, which doesn't seem especially realistic or, or reasonable either. I mean, even in my own experience of running a small company, you know, under 10 people, I, every time we have a stand-up and I bring up, uh, you know, what's going on, folks? What's, uh, you know, did, did anybody have uh, anything special happening on the weekend? There's a little part of me that says, hey, wait, you know, we got to move. We got to move. We got, we got stuff to do. We shouldn't be uh, wasting time this way. And I don't know if that's just American uh, corporate culture that's just seeped into every corner of what we do. But I know it's wrong, but I still feel guilty when I ask people how they're doing. Mm. Okay. Well, you got me on your couch. You weren't (laughs) bargaining for that necessarily. So uh, before I go uh, too deep into my own psychoses and neuroses, why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, I think we'll talk a little bit about this issue of loneliness and relationships in general and how they impact people in the design world. We'll be right back. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, 
and very engaging for groups, and that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth, we'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when, programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're gonna find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld with my guest, Kat Bellos. And we are talking about loneliness and how uh, organizations and managers have a really difficult challenge in terms of supporting people, uh, not going too far, uh, not being uh, on the other end of the spectrum too transactional, and um, not an easy needle to thread. I wonder if you feel, Kat, that in the design setting, it's an even more difficult challenge. Um, what do we bring in our industry that makes this uh, any tougher or maybe not? Mm, yeah. So this is something interesting. And I, um, I talked about this at greater length in an interview with uh, Holiday Matinee earlier this year where um, we were talking about design and what is it that might be making it harder for designers to cultivate connection. And the hypothesis I have is that we have, so in design itself, this is as, as a practice, as an industry, one of the characteristics of it is that we are applying judgment in how we evaluate, you know, the work that we're creating, because, you know, if we are committed to the work we're creating, we want to create the best work possible, which means constantly evaluating, critiquing, and judging. And the issue is that there's kind of like in my head, there's two buckets of, you know, design skills. Half of them are the generative skills and half of them are the refinement skills. And the generative skills are actually very, very useful for cultivating healthy human-to-human -human connection. So um, creative thinking, open-mindedness, um, kind of the yes and, the experimentation, having curiosity, certainly having empathy, like all of those things that go into generative side of design are excellent for creating connection. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, the refinement skills that come with evaluating, critiquing, judging, rejecting, you know, all the things that so-called like help us get to a more perfect design are actually awful for creating human connection. Because if we come at each other with this like judgmental, critical, like looking for errors, looking for problems, looking for what might go wrong, like all of those things are actually going to be not that helpful 
when you're trying to just be on a human to human level with each other. And unfortunately, this surfaces for a lot of the designers I've spoken with in terms of how they feel unwelcome, even in the design industry and often in their design teams, because they're experiencing high exposure to designers' judgmentalism and comparing oneself to others, like constantly, like designers being compared to each other, work being compared all the time. So there's this sense of always being under the microscope, feeling um, that at any moment, somebody can level like a very harsh critique against you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that goes beyond just the surface level, like that affects how people feel as human beings. And so um, unfortunately, some of those uh, refinement skills for perfecting a design seep in and then make a somewhat unwelcoming experience or a lack of belonging experience for people in teams. And even, like I said, in the design industry, certainly like design Twitter, um, people are afraid of being canceled all the time over like being imperfect in some way. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we are human beings and we are imperfect. Um, But there seems to be this general fear of imperfection uh, being a source of uh, being outcast from the group or not fitting in with the group. You know, I, I, I see that all the time. I think you've really hit the, the nail on the head. And what I'm starting to think about a little bit and, and actually um, came up in uh, probably um, the last uh, podcast interview I did, which is with uh, Vincent Brathwaite is also speaking at Design Ops Summit. We're talking a lot about protocols for people to use to engage with each other when they may not know each other. And um, how do you actually kind of, you know, kick off a relationship that can lead to, you know, authentic discussion and even critique um, when it's already hard to get to know someone well enough to get to that point. And then we foul it all up with this ridiculous all remote role that we brought upon ourselves. So um, how do you, like, you know, uh, when, when you get on a, a Zoom call, for example, with someone, um, you know, there's some basic stuff at this point that we can count on as protocol. Like, oh, hey, it's nice to meet you. Oh, I, I like what you're wearing. Uh, you know, I have some, one of those as well. Or, um, you know, your background, that's really cool. Uh, and we can break the ice that way and uh, at least see each other's faces, see, see a smile and that sort of thing. But that's all we got. And I'm just wondering if your second book gets into how protocols are really a kind of critical engine in getting people to a point where they can actually have these deeper and often more critical types of exchanges. How do you mean critical? Could be criticizing ideas as in the form of critique. Mm, Okay. So for clarification, the second book, Connected from Afar, is not about critique at all. Um, It's six months of weekly connection prompts for people to use with friends or loved ones who are far away. And in terms of protocol, you know, it's not certainly framed that way in the book. It's much uh, more heart-centered in terms of like the language and how it's driven. But underlying all of that is certainly a protocol that is about opening up with curiosity mm-hmm. to the kinds of interactions you have with people and bringing a sense of experimentation 
play, and again, curiosity to how you engage, um, whether that's through multiple of the practices in there that are based on appreciation. So there's a sense of noticing, appreciating, and then expressing appreciation. And you can call that critique if you want, maybe positive critique. Um, instead of looking for errors, you're looking for things to value mm-hmm. <laughs> or appreciate about something um, or about someone. And some of the other things are about practicing curiosity. So for example, one of the things that we're all having as a shared experience in pandemic is the fact that since we're in a shared experience, like we can talk about that subject and everybody has a way to say how they're feeling or thinking uh, in relation to the pandemic. However, it is also mentally exhausting to only have one kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. And when that conversation is about something that is inherently stressful. So there's a lot of prompts in there about like, here's ways to, like you said, like break the ice and actually like crack open the door to having a different kind of conversation. Just because we're in a pandemic doesn't mean that's the only thing you can talk about. Um, And it's actually really soothing for your like nervous system and your connection to talk about something else that still gives you a sense of getting to be seen and heard and knowing more about the person that you're talking to than just, you know, how are they coping with it? And so I really invite people to, if they've been maxed out on the stress level, like to take a break and like to have a different kind of conversation. And I have hundreds of conversation starters that they, uh, I point them to that they can use to invite connection in more meaningful ways without just dealing in small talk or the new cycle. That that sounds wonderful. Uh, Yeah, I didn't really mean to imply that it was a book about critique specifically, but more in the sense that well, at least in terms of my question about uh, protocol, um, you know, like you, you mentioned, you know, uh, establishing curiosity. I, as an example, I wonder if there is a ever a concern that one person showing their curiosity is taken as, I don't know, um, being a bit uh, almost like interfering with another person, like it's you know interfering in their business. Is I'm just wondering if there's like any clear way to, you know, let's say be curious without being annoying. (laughs) Um, Yeah, this is great. This is actually similar to a reader question I got last week on my newsletter who, you know, she said she wants to have deeper conversations that are not small talk with people, but she doesn't want it. Like they say she's too serious and she doesn't know how to move them into that. And so part of it is a, like being really clear with people up front, like that you're making an invitation and that there's not any pressure to have a certain kind of conversation if they don't want to. Like certainly people should be allowed to consent or not consent to a particular kind of discussion, um, especially if the discussion is about something stressful or mm-hmm. or more, more heavy. Um, so make an invitation and allow people to say, yeah, I'm into that or, or no, I'm not. And um, The other thing you can do is if you are wanting to take a break from the norm um, and you're hoping to like, I just need a reset, um, frame it as a reset. Tell people like, are you, have you been feeling X, Y, Z way too? Because that's how I'm feeling. And I would really love to share ABC kind of experience with you, or I've known you for seven years and I, and I still don't know, you know, this Mm -hmm. thing about you or that thing about you. And I love learning more about you. Would you like to have a conversation with me soon about, you know, da, da, da. And so when you frame it that way, A, like people have the chance to opt out if they don't have the energy or the ability to do that right now. And it's just a lot more inviting than just being like, I'm just like drilling you with questions. It's like, no, like do not do it that way. (laughs) Like 
make it invitational and make it feel warm and inviting um, and accept it if people say they don't have bandwidth or capacity to do that right now. Everyone's uh, got a lot going on. I love the directness of that approach. Um, another thing I love uh, about your work is you're not just writing about it, you're doing it in the sense of, uh, well, a number of ways, but I'm thinking specifically of the Connection Club. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so Connection Club is a weekly ritual that I hold on um, online and anybody can come. We have people join from here in the States all the way out to Mexico, Amsterdam, Ireland, like a lots of people are on there. And it's a chance to do two things. So one is many people say they want to do a better job of keeping in touch with their friends, but they just don't have the time um, or they want to have time to journal or they want to have time to write and they don't make time for it. Um, and so with accountability and a group of accountability buddies, which we all are, we agree to meet each week um, and spend half an hour together doing exactly that thing. And then the second half of it, for people who do want more connection in their life, who might be living alone, haven't seen their friends in like eight months, um, and they want to have conversations about something beyond, like I said, the weather, COVID, election cycle. They want to talk about other things too. Mm -hmm. um, I provide guided conversational prompts and put people in small groups in the second half of the club. And then people have a chance to have a conversation and meet a couple of new people in that group. Uh, many of the members have come back like week after week after week. So um, there's a, a closeness that I think develops as people start to know each other more. And every time we meet, we have new people and new people are always welcome and fit right in. So um, that's what we do. It's a wonderful experience for anybody who wants to join. Uh, they can head to my website, we should get together.com and sign up. That sounds fantastic. Um, I'm actually thinking as you're describing it of a few people, I'm going to recommend it to. Um, I also wonder if that's not a bad model for, let's say, a bunch of people. Uh, design ops managers and leaders to think about maybe not to replace their regular stand-ups, but maybe as something, you know, as an alternative or a supplement to the kind of uh, meetings that they do in their workplaces. Have you seen that done? Or have you maybe even consulted for organizations to do things along those lines? I think it's a good model to use. I think it's a, a good thing to try. And uh, something else that I have consulted with organizations to try is that what looks like the second half of Connection Club, which is getting together for a weekly uh, casual informal connection time where it's a break to talk about something beyond work. Love it. So we're going to wrap it up, but I, before we do, I always like to ask my guests if they uh, have come across something or someone that might be a little bit of a gift to uh, reveal to our listeners. Anything come to mind for you, Kat? Yeah, uh, definitely. The first thing that comes to mind is a wonderful book that I just recently finished reading. It's called Building Brand Communities. It's by Carrie Melissa Jones and Charles Vogel. And uh, honestly, like it doesn't, like it has the word brand in the middle, but it really could just have been called Building Communities because it is just a wonderful uh, guidebook to folks who may be newer to the experience of cultivating a community or running a community group um, inside of a company or outside of a company. Um, they've managed to take things that I've learned over the last couple decades through my facilitator training, some of it through actual training and learning, some of it through trial and error, and they have captured like just a powerhouse wealth of um, really instructional, supportive content around how to create a healthy community. It's a, a wonderful book. Highly recommend it. 
Thank you. Actually, I'm going to read it because we were just looking for something just like that in a conversation at work this morning. So, oh, appreciate it. Kat Velos, uh, so glad to have you on the show. Kat Velos, uh, UX designer and author. You should check out her books. We should get together, The Secret to Cultivating Better Friendships and Connected from Afar, A Guide to Staying Close When You're Far Away, Unbelievably Timely Topics for This Day and Age. Do you want to learn more about Kat? You could uh, go to her website, we should get together.com. You could follow her on Twitter at Kat Velos, K A T V E L L O S, or on Instagram uh, at Kat Velos underscore author. Kat, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on, Lou. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen. And please check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.